Um, I was thinking about uh, when I was here a couple weeks ago, and, and we had that uh, this this pause, this kind of a break. And uh, Chris, Chris, my wife, who loves me very much, right? She said it was a little long. You, you know, it was a little long. But man, sometimes don't you feel the freneticness of life, like just the constant chaos of life? Sometimes that's a blessing right there. So, um, I hope you're all doing well. I, am, I can't express to you how good it is to be home. And uh, I, everything about, I, now I'm going to say this because some of you may not know I was on vacation. Most of you know I was on vacation, right? And somebody's messed with my earpiece now, so it's all whacked out. <laughs> so I keep doing this. But some, uh, so, something about coming home. You know, do you enjoy vacation? I hope you've had a chance. Yeah, somebody, yes. I hope you've had a chance to experience a vacation uh, this summer. And, and there's still a little bit of time left, although not much, if you have kids, right? This is it. Uh, but you know, something about going on vacation is so great because you leave everything behind and you just go, yes, we're on vacation, you know? And, and uh, there's something I used to love about it, you know, having a family. When you go on a family vacation, no matter what happens on the vacation, uh, no, no matter in the moment how, how awful it seems, somehow it's, it becomes this, it's, it's this truth about your life that you have this family and it's us against the world, you know? I mean, because back home you have all these other relationships and stuff and all this stuff muddies the waters and your kids have friends and you have friends and your wife and your husband have friends and, and everything. But when you get out there, it's just us in this little vehicle somewhere on the planet. You know, that's where our experience, our vacation. So no matter what happens when you go on vacation, th there's this sense of accomplishment. Maybe it's just for men. I don't know. <laughs> we got there. <laughs> you know, uh, it happened. Um, but, but, and then everything you see is new, especially if you go to a new place. Everything you see is new and you go, wow, look at that. Ooh, look at this. And everything. Well, that's great. But I'm telling you all this because there is something about coming home that you just go, wow, this is great. And uh, I had that experience where I walked through the door of our house, and I opened it up, and it was bigger than a hotel room. And I went, wow, man, this is great. And Chris goes, no, unload the van, you know, we're unloading the van, and we're, oh, wow, we're going to have clean clothes again, you know. Or, I mean, all the things that come with it. And, uh, and part of that this morning was just coming back here with you all, and you know, wow, this is great. It's great. So uh, we, we, we had the opportunity to go and, and spend some time on vacation, and, and it was fantastic. One of the most interesting things that happened, I'm going to give me one second. Speaker there. Thanks, Brett. And uh, one of the things that happened this year that was different than every year in the years past is we had this little device that my wife finally talked me into getting. Actually, she bought it. She just didn't talk to me about it anymore. I kept saying, oh, we don't need it, you know, and, I asked for directions, but this is a GPS, right? And, um, and we had this little thing, and, and uh, she's had it for real estate and stuff, and it just does its little job there. It tells her where the houses are and whatnot. So cool, right? And I thought, well, this is going to be the best thing ever, right, to have a GPS on vacation. You know, because you don't ever wonder where you are again. You don't ever have to ask for directions again, right? Now, it's got a little warning there. You saw it. It said, don't push this while you're driving, yeah, uh, you should probably put that out of the reach of the driver. <laughs> That's one of those sins you're just going to commit, you know, like, 
You just go, oh, I agree to that for five minutes. But this thing would just tell you everything. And, and uh, it was just the moment. See, it tells us right where we're at right now. Like then, cool. And, and I thought, it's just the coolest thing ever, you know? But then I noticed something that happened as we drove. I was driving along, in the, and, and uh, we would see an arrival time. It, it gives you an estimated time of arrival, which is so cool, until somebody has to go to the bathroom. You see, Google and those guys on the Google Maps and stuff, I think that they build in that time. They, they first of all, know you're going to drive the speed limit, right? Yeah. And then you know, you're going to stop to eat once in a while, right, guys? <laughs> and you're going to stop for a bathroom break once in a while, right, guys? I mean, uh, and, and you know what would happen every time we pull off the highway to stop somewhere? That clock would just keep moving back. Oh, I can't tell you what a discouragement this became for me. I mean, and I told Chris, I said, this is going to cost us 11 minutes. And she's like, honey, they have to go. It's going to cost us a lot more than 11 minutes, right, if we don't stop. And then I did it. I cursed ourselves with it because then I said, I want a meal. We drove all day. I said, I want a meal, honey. She said, we're not there yet. We need to get to the hotel. Don't stop to get to the hotel. I said, I'm hungry. Let's sit down. I'm tired of this van. Let's get a meal, you know. And, uh, and we stopped and we had a meal. And it was glorious because this thing was in the car, you know. And, and we ate the meal and enjoyed it. And she said, you ready to go yet? I said, no, I'm enjoying my coffee and I'm drinking my coffee, you know. And oh, it's so great. And we get back in there, and it's like, you've wasted an hour. <laughs> and, uh, and I just go, oh, my goodness, you know. So, so these things, it really became a little tyrant to me, you know. And, and it was so frustrating to watch the clock tick back. You hit construction, and the minutes would add up, and then you would feel inclined to break the law in speed, and you would get them to go down. And it was just this whole burden the whole time. I tell you, we might lose that thing next vacation. Something else happened with that little device one time. We were trying to find a restaurant, and we were going, you know, and she was driving this time because she was tired of the way I was always playing with that and arguing about where we were going or whatever. And, and so she was driving, and it said, turn right. I kid you not. And so she says, turn right. And I said, I think it's lying to you because it gets confused sometimes. And, and she, she, she turns right, and it goes, it goes, turn left. And she goes, there's no left turn there. I said, well, don't listen to it. It's wrong, you know. And, and it, said, it said, turn left. Turn right, turn right, turn right. If you do the math on that, I kid you not, it drove us in a circle. It, it, and what happened was she had made a wrong turn. She had turned the wrong road, and then it was trying to correct it. But she's going, this thing's crazy. And then sure enough, we get back out to the road, and we're, we're supposed to keep going that way, <laughs> you know? And it felt like a burden to us. And that's what I want to talk about today. That's what I want to talk about. So much of the life that we experience and some of the things maybe we even find in Scripture might feel like a burden to us. But before we begin to get into the Word, I'd like to pray together if you'd join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the blessings. Oh, Lord, there's so many, so much to be thankful for. But yet, Lord, we also know that sometimes we live in that place of frustration, that place of anxiety, that place of, of hurt or pain. And uh, today, Lord, we just come to you to be wholly open before you, Lord. Whatever you want to have happen, uh, we pray your spirit would, would um, have that happen with us, Lord. Have your way with us this time. Open your word. Open our minds to your word and your word to our minds, Lord, that we might truly learn something today from the living God. We might truly be transformed, Lord, by your presence. And, uh, and at the end of it all, might we always have your praise on our lips. 
for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for all things in his holy name. Amen. We're going to look today at the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And uh, something about that, that GPS experience, that, especially that going around the block, you know, it just started to remind me of this book. And I, try, I, I tell you, I, I did try to put this sermon prep stuff away, and I did, but then, you know, towards the end of the week, God started saying, hey, pay attention, you know, this is what we're going to talk about. And, um, and so I'm just going to start by in Ecclesiastes, and I, I'm not sure what page it is on the books on the table. Uh, it's, it's going to be after the Psalms and the Proverbs, right? Right after Proverbs, so it's about in the middle of your Bible. If you let it fall open, you'll find it pretty easily there. And I'm just going to start reading here in, in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 1, and then we'll spend some time talking about this. Ecclesiastes, by the way, I guess we'll talk about it right now, is attributed to uh, King Solomon. So this is someone who's saying this who has some wisdom, some importance. He wrote the Proverbs, he wrote Ecclesiastes, and he wrote Song of Solomon, by the way. So you have wisdom, you have Ecclesiastes, and you have this book of love. And, uh, and this is what he's left to us, besides being son uh, to David, the king. And so this is the person that's, uh, attributed, this text is attributed to. Listen to what it says here in verse 2. He says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. And it hurries back to where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. Round and around it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye has never had enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which we can say, look, this is new? It was already there long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Now see, isn't this an encouraging book? <laughs> You know, but there's so much truth here to be found. I want to talk about a few of the words that we see here that becomes interesting. And the first thing I want to kind of talk about is the whole title, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is actually a, a Greek take on a Hebrew word, okay? And it means one who collects or gathers. And, and if, if you don't know this, actually what we're doing right here this morning is called uh, ecclesia in Greek. It's the gathering of the people. Right? And some people would say this is the ecclesia, and then some people would say that this is the ecclesia, meaning that I'm the one gathering, which isn't the case this morning. But that's what's attributed here when it says teacher. He's the one that collects things in Ecclesiastes. So that word, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it in Hebrew here, ko, ko, oh, I just said I wouldn't, and I will here. <laughs> Koheleth is the word that says, the teacher says in verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. This is the one who's collected all these things, right? And, uh, and we'll talk about who that teacher is. But Solomon's writing this idea that everything is meaningless. That's the next word that becomes very important in this passage. What, is, what does that mean, meaningless? It's kind of a silly question. But meaningless is this, I, this word is this vapor, this breath. The word vanity which they say they can't use in modern translations because it means something else now. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. Vanity now kind of means what? Like self-pride. You know, we talked about the mirror a couple weeks ago. 
just like vain, vanity. Vanity really was this idea of uselessness. There's no purpose in it. And we've kind of attributed it to having a purpose now. But it's this idea of vapor, breath, vanity, vainly. As a matter of fact, the same word is used in the First Testament for idols. When God says, have no idols before me, no useless things in your life before me. Idols or waste. It's the idea of exhaling, emptying, being futile, or worthless, or of no more use. Meaningless, meaningless, he writes. All things are meaningless. You just feel that. It's this place of, of, of lack. The exhale, and you can't breathe anymore. This is the word that he chooses to open this text with. And it's such a profound idea that he begins to build on. And you hope, if, you're, if you know Jesus Christ, you hope, you go, man, this is going to get good <laughs> until you read the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> and we're going to talk about several stopping points today. But he means it. It's all for nothing. All for nothing. He also says the striving after the wind. And every time I looked at the word striving, I was all excited about the word striving, and I realized that he always puts it as striving after the wind. It's kind of a phrase he uses continually. And it's this idea of longing for or striving or chasing after the air or the breath, you know? Everything is meaningless, and it's all just chasing after something you can't ever get back, he says as he opens the book of Ecclesiastes. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if you have this need in your own lives, but this need to kind of catch your breath. You know, maybe we talked about that earlier, that space just to go, <sighs> You know, we have the, uh, who's been watching the Olympics? Anybody watching the Olympics? I can't, I can't stop watching that stuff, you know? It's crazy. But those guys, the funniest thing to me is now we're going to do track and field this week, Right? And the funniest thing to me is these guys run like the fastest 100 meters of their life or whatever, and then somebody comes up with a camera and a mic and sticks it in their face and says, how did that go? And the guy's always going, <laughs> and he's trying to talk. This guy's in shape, and he's just like spitting out words. And you know, you see the relief on their face when they finally say, thanks a lot, champ, whatever. And he goes, and he walks off because he just goes over and goes, oh, man. You know, this idea that, that, that he's trying to catch his breath. Give me a minute. Everything he says is like that, just... Give me a minute, give me a minute. This is what Solomon tells us. And then the last word I want to talk about here is the word profit, right? And it means, it says, what does it profit a man, right? I mean, what is it good for you? And it's this idea of an advantage or a benefit. What's left over? Solomon's saying, what's left at the end of the day? At the end of the day. You see Solomon here, we're going to go ahead with him in, in chapter 2. But he claims something that's profound. You see, Solomon says, I've tried everything. I want to read that together. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is what Solomon says. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more, hordes, more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. 
the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Listen to what he says. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. And yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled so hard to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. That's a funny thing to hear. You know, I mean, if, if you ascribe to the faith, either Jewish faith or Christian faith, you would say, yes, King Solomon was the greatest king to ever live. He had all the wealth and this and that. I'm not sure if you come outside the context of a, of a church history or background that you would necessarily into that. Because you would say, well, Bill Gates has more. Or you would say that Bill Gates isn't the richest guy in the world anymore. Did you know that? He's been passed up. So-and-so has more. The, the, you know, Solomon, he might have had some stuff, you know. But his point is he had so much stuff and it was all meaningless. Have you ever heard that said before, by the way? <clears throat> I remember one time I was, having, I was sitting there with a, a, an elder, a person who was older than me, you know, someone who had more years on this planet than I had. And they, were, they had been playing a lottery or something. I don't know what it was. And they were talking to someone who was extremely successful. And the person said to them, just over kind of coffee talk, you know, it said, you know, they said, man, if I would win the lottery, this would happen. If I would do this, that would happen. The person said across the table, I hate to tell you this, but money can't buy you happiness. Now, this wasn't coming from me or somebody else. I mean, it was coming from somebody who actually knew. They had way more stuff than anybody that we knew had at that time in our lives. And, uh, and yet this person said across the table, well, money can't buy you happiness. And you know what the response was? I'm missing a beat, right? I'd like to take your word for it. But I'd rather see for myself. You know? Don't we live that way? Because here, that's kind of what I feel happens with Solomon. You see, Solomon's trying to say, I tried all this stuff and it's all meaningless. And we go, that's great, Solomon, but I want to I try that new whatever it is. I, I think it's, it's true on a philosophical level. But practically, I might wait till I get that next raise to really see that next promotion to really believe it. I might have to wait till I'm the richest guy in the world so that I can tell all the other people, well, no, it doesn't buy you happiness. And that becomes our excuse for this constant chasing, this constant running, this breathlessness. And we'd like to take his word for it, but we can't. Solomon in 2.17, let's read with him what it says. He says, I hated my life, he says. I hated life in 17 because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. You see, Solomon begins to realize that no matter what he does in this world, what wealth he amasses, how many people he influences, how many people he rules over, no matter what happens, he's going to leave it all behind. He's a very wise man. He talks about how much he begins to hate everything he's done. You know, you... 
I, sometimes you get there, right? You get there where you just regret. You go, oh, why did I waste so many years of my life? You know? As a parent, one place this always comes up with me is when older folks say, treasure your children. Do you ever, do you ever hear that or say that to somebody? And we try, you know, but we screw it up, right? Because we just don't pay attention. And then we turn around and look and they're grown. Happens day by day and we miss it. We miss the opportunities we get so focused on the, meaningless of work, the meaninglessness of work, and he says there, because of that, I just come to hate life because I can't keep any of it. Talking about the meaninglessness of work. Some of you went through the Financial Peace University class, and one of the lessons that, he, that Dave, Dave Ramsey teaches in that course is the idea of finding something to do with your life that matters more than a paycheck. And that might sound crazy for a guy who says, make all the money you can, as long as you can, and then give away all you can. That's what he kind of says, right? But he says, find something that has purpose in your life to do for a living. And he cites this example, which I found, thought was profound. And I think it's a microcosm of what, what Solomon experienced, but he just experienced it on a whole different level. And he had so much wisdom to see it, because many of us don't ever get the time to see the truth of what's going on here. He said, they did an experiment with a bunch of college students, Right? And they said, you know, these college students are broke. Most college students are broke, right? And so they said, so we're going to go ahead, we're going to pay these guys $7.50 an hour to dig a ditch, okay? Now, what they didn't know, what the students didn't know, was this is actually a psychological experiment on them. They were the rats in the maze. But they thought they were just going to go out and dig a ditch. So they were pretty cool with that. And so he said, we're going to pay you $7.50 an hour to go out and dig a ditch. And they had all these students show up, you know, 65, 70 students show up the first day like, yeah, $7.50. It was above minimum wage at the time. It was back before minimum wage was close to that, and, and they would go out, <clears throat> and they would dig, and they had breaks, and they had lunch, and at lunch, they said, now fill the ditch back in, and they go, we just dug that ditch, now, that's okay, fill it in, we're paying you $7.50 an hour, fill it in, so they, they fill the ditch back in all the way, right, and then they say, at the end of the day, they say, good day of work, you've done a great thing, you dug this ditch out, and you filled it in, Come back tomorrow, and we'll pay you $15 an hour to, dig this, to, to work for us again. Well, the next day, they had about half as many people show up. Twice the money, right? And they started, what are we doing today? And they said, well, we want you to dig a ditch over there. And they're digging a ditch, and they probably talk to themselves, going, they're not going to make us do this again. I mean, this is stupid, right? This is too much money to waste. And they got to the end of the ditch, four hours of digging, and they said, okay, fill it back in. And they filled the ditch back in. They said, come back tomorrow and we'll double your salary. And again, less people showed up. By the end, they were paying a salary that no one with any sense would pay a bunch of college kids to dig a ditch and fill it in, and no one would show up to do the work. And Ramsey says that's because the work was meaningless. And you have to have something in your life that's more valuable than your compensation. You have to have something you're doing that matters beyond the grave. And this is what Solomon's beginning to realize as he writes this. All is meaningless, and I hate all I've done. You know, I've heard this story before, and sadly it wasn't in a psychological testing environment. I've been told that during the, um, in the concentration camps, the way they would break the will of the Jews who they were going to exterminate was they would make them move piles of rocks day after day. And eventually their will would break. Because we can't keep doing meaningless work for long before everything in us just dries up and becomes nothing. So this is what Solomon is teaching us here. 
Flip ahead with me to 4, 8, chapter 4, verse 8. We're going to jump around a little bit here in the middle. Another thing that he talks about with this idea of working, of, of, of toiling, because he begins to kind of say some things, we'll talk about in a minute, what benefits there are, because he, he's not all negative. He's got some positive stuff in there, right? But in 4.8, this, there was a man all alone. He had neither a son nor a brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. I want you to hear that. The man was all alone. He had not a son or a brother, and there was no end to his work. Because his, yet his eyes were not content with what he had. No matter how much he had, it was never enough for this man. And he says, for whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? And Solomon says, this too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. What struck me about this in this modern context is this idea of, I don't know if you've seen it, you know, I was in business before, you've seen the workaholic? You've seen those folks that would forsake everything in their lives for the work that they're doing. And no matter what they had, no matter what position, what title, what, it was never enough. And, they would, and you wouldn't even envy them anymore as so much as you'd pity them. And you'd start to pray for them. And you'd just go, oh God, let there be more to their life than their work. The trouble is that we take pride in those things, don't we? We take pride in having the last office light open or on in the hall. We take pride in being the last one to have to lock up every day, right? Because it proves something, doesn't it? it? Proves we work harder than everybody else. It proves we do more than everybody else. And here Solomon says, this man was all alone. He had no one or nothing, and yet he could not stop what he was doing. He says it's meaningless, and it's a miserable, miserable business. And then in 4.14, just a little bit ahead there, he tells us another story. And this is profound because you have to always remember who's speaking here. And it's Solomon who's speaking and he's saying, the youth may have come, to take, the youth may have come from prison. Listen to what it says. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship. Or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. Right? That's a big change in life. And I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, this king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before this guy. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. You see, this too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. <laughs> you know, you ever fall for that trick? That guy don't know what he's doing. If I had that guy's job, I'd have this all figured out. And you start to get people to say, yeah, man, you got, you're the guy. You just go take that guy. And you just go and you, and that guy, he's going to go. Because nobody can hold your position forever, right? You're all replaceable. And then there he goes. And this guy gets up there and it says, it doesn't last long. And I'm not pleased with the successor. Advancement, if you have a title in your NIV, advancement is meaningless is what it says. And he is talking here, King Solomon is talking as a king, as one who has made this journey from the knees of David to the kingship of Israel. He's the guy. And he's saying it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Even to the position of king. Now there's a beautiful little spot in this book. I want to show it to you. You may have seen it. It's in chapter 3. So turn to chapter 3 because, and I think if, if somebody could write the right music, you might be able to make a song out of this. It says, um, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under this heaven. 
A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and then gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give away. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Wouldn't that make a beautiful song? If only someone could write some music for it. But you know what the problem with that is for me? It just doesn't ring true. It doesn't ring true. I mean, philosophically, it rings true, right? We can all sit around at the coffee house, right, and sip our latte and say, hmm, yes, there is a time for everything. But I can tell you this, there's never a good time for death. That's what it says. Time to be born, time to die. When's that time? When is that a good time? Right? When is it a good time to hate? That's what it says. When is it a good time for war? Accelerating this process of death. When is it a good time to throw things away? But he's trying to say something here philosophically about the balance we find ourselves in in life. Because no matter how much we don't like this text, it's true. There are all these things that are held in tension. There are all these things that don't connect in our lives. And we go, oh, Lord, what's going on? Is that what you do? That's what I do, right? You just cry out when it doesn't make sense anymore. And Solomon says, there's time for all that stuff. There's time for everything. Now, you can find a little assurance in this, and I kind of do. Because there's time. So like if somebody's rushing, you know, hey, you're going to be late. You go, hey, there's time for everything, man. <laughs> you know, that's what, but that's what it says. There's time for everything. You see, Solomon, in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to encourage you to read the whole thing because we can't get through it all this morning, and we're not going to. We'd all be depressed and have to go out, and I don't know what we'd do after worship today. He finds very little hope. Now, I'm going to show you a few spots he finds some hope. He says, all a person can ever hope for is to eat, drink, and enjoy their work. It's in 2.24. Let's look at that right quick. I want to read the actual words. A man can do nothing better, he says, than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. And if, if in the book of Ecclesiastes, when he mentions God, it becomes a good thing. And he says, this too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without God, who can eat or drink or find enjoyment? He begins to say there's something more that you can just, with God, you can enjoy it, right? To the man who pleases God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth just to hand it over to one who pleases God. That's Solomon's conviction. He wrote the Proverbs, you'll remember. This too is meaningless, though, he says, a chasing after the wind. So even in this moment of like, hey, there's this good thing, he goes, ah, but it's meaningless, Turn to five. Turn to chapter five. Solomon says this about God. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling that vow. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. You see, Solomon respects God. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Woo. And do not protest the temple messenger. 
My vow was a mistake. He's saying, don't try to renegotiate the deal after you've made it. Why should God be angry at you and say what, what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Hmm. Therefore, he says, stand in awe of God. He doesn't so much not understand God as he just can't seem to connect it to his real life. Do you see that happening? He knows there's this awesome God. He knows that somehow if you're in, you know God, you've got this peace about things and happiness, but you can't have without him. But yet he always finds himself saying, because even after, look at the next, but riches are meaningless. I mean, he's just going to go through the list with you here, and this book will turn you inside out. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. When I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink, now here he has an epiphany, right? And to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days that God has given him, for this is his lot. And this is what he's saying here. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, that is a gift from God. There's something about contentedness that is a gift from God. If you always have to have, if you always need, if you're always pursuing, it might seem like the greatest thing ever, right? But there's something about being content as well that is a gift from God that allows you to enjoy all that God has given you. You see, he's got that kind of same conviction that everything good is coming from God anyway. And on and on it goes. On and on the, the book of Ecclesiastes goes. And it keeps returning and saying it's all meaningless. It's all a chasing after the wind. Everything. He can't seem to connect real life with this God who is good. Have you had that problem in your life? Have you ever been there? The problem the author of Ecclesiastes continually runs into is one problem. It's death. The reason that he keeps throwing his hands up at the end of the day and going, what are we going to do, is because he runs into death. He says at one point, if you're a king or if you're a pauper, you're both going to die. There's no way around it. You're going to die. We say that. You know, my favorite thing is talking to high schoolers about it. Actually, you talk to high school about it. They're like, yeah, we get it. You know? But I don't get it. As an adult, you know, you don't, we don't get it. We don't get it until we're there. We don't get it until we're in the room. We don't get it until we face it. And King Solomon faced it. I want you to look ahead here to chapter 12. Chapter 12. This is where he wraps up the book, right? His insights here. Ecclesiastes, the gathering, the wisdom, all the stuff he's put together. A whole bunch of stuff in here we're hopping over. But just I'm going to read the whole chapter 12 to you. I'll through 8 at first. It says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, <laughs> before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house begin to tremble, and the strong men start to stoop. When the grinders cease because there are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When men are afraid of heights and dangers found in the street, 
and the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and no desire is stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go out in the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the, is, the pitcher is shattered in the spring or the wheel is broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground that it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The last words in the book. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. He begins and ends this entire gut-wrenching, you know, depressing, what do you want to call it? Inside-out journey. He begins it and he ends it the same way. It's all for nothing. He, rest, he lays you there to rest. And he says, it's all for nothing, this wise King Solomon says. There's something odd that happens in this book of Ecclesiastes, though. There's something, there's, there's a couple of voices we start to hear here. Because the meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless, is at the beginning and the end of what's quoted as King Solomon. But if you turn back to the first chapter, the first verse, it says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. This voice has a narrative sound. It's not the one that's crying out. It's not the one that's saying there's no hope. And the whole thing there becomes a quote from Solomon. And at the end, it says in, in verse 9, the conclusion of the matter is my title. But I want to start here at 13. I want you to read with me. The final thoughts. It's something that encases this whole message from Solomon. It's something that goes before he speaks it and after he ends it. And I want you to hear what it says. One time I had a friend of mine who was a great man of God. He, had a, he, he told me, he said, if you're going to read the book of Ecclesiastes, only read these verses. <laughs> Don't read the rest. <laughs> now all has been heard in verse 13. Here is the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, because God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or or evil. There's someone who's outside of this that says, no matter what you see, no matter what despair you go through, remember, fear God and do what he commands, right? I'll tell you what happens here for a Christian. What happens for a Christian is you live in that space of saying, what is the point? It's, there's nothing. It all is lost. And then you find yourself caught in a room full of death, and you still know life. You find yourself in the down and out and you still find hope. And you go, this doesn't make sense. This is death. This is the end of all things. What am I, what's wrong with me? And then Jesus says, it's me. Because we as Christians don't wallow in this kind of lostness of the world. We have one who has reached down right where we were and pulled us from death. The most famous verse of scripture, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life, not rot in the grave. 
John 3, 17. The one we always miss. <laughs> because God sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. Boy, what a good word. What a good word. I want to tell you a story about Jesus. Jesus Christ came in the very image of the very flesh of man, the very likeness of man, but fully God. God knew the problem in Ecclesiastes. He knew the meaningless of Ecclesiastes, and he sent his son to come and to live among us, just like you and just like me, dirty hands. We talk about that all the time, right? Just down in the dirt. He always loved the sinners. He always confronted the self-righteous. He always, always led us toward him. And at the end of all of this, at the end of all of this, the way that God showed his love for you and his love for me was not through some worldly success and not through some great hope, this, oh, it's going to be, we're going to know he went to a cross. And he died. And it makes no sense. And if that had been the end of Jesus' testimony to us, all would have been lost. And we could have joined King Solomon despairing and saying, oh, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. But that's not the story of Jesus Christ. Because three days later, he was raised from the dead. And I'm sorry if I'm getting loud. Chris always says, don't get loud. But sometimes it's hard to be quiet about it. Because he was raised as the dead, the Bible says, as the first fruits of a new generation. And if you know Jesus Christ, you know that hope. You know the resurrection story. And you stand in a room that's filled with death, and I pray, God is my witness, that I would be there on my deathbed longing for the resurrection moment. Because that is our testimony to the world, that all is not lost. That there is meaning, there's something bigger, there's something better, there's something more. The beautiful thing about the salvation story of Jesus Christ, the soteriology of Jesus Christ, is not that it begins at the grave. It begins when you accept him. Too many times we think, boy, it'll be great once I'm dead, I can be with Jesus. Jesus is here right now. Boy, it'll be great when I have eyes to see. You can have eyes to see right now. And your whole life will be changed. And you will stand in that room and you will have a hope that you cannot hardly explain except to say, Jesus died for me. It's a good word. Jesus, after he was resurrected, I'm going to turn here to Luke, the last chapter of Luke 24. Because we're not just left with the testimony of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. We're not just left with the hope of the resurrection from the dead. That is surely our hope, Christians. We will be raised again. But this is what it says. In verse 44, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled and is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. You see, Jesus said all those stories way back there had to come to fruition on that cross at Calvary. And I had to pay the price. And then he opened their minds God, may it be so. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And then he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning first at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. 
So stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on high. It's not just that he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. He makes a promise to us that he is sending a gift to us. What's it say? A power from on high to live differently. This is the gift of a Holy Spirit. A gift of a wind that's a new wind. Then when everyone's all, oh, I got nothing left, you go, Jesus is alive. This is the new wind that we get through Christ Jesus. And I pray today that if you're here and you think this, you're out of your mind. Well, you're probably not alone, okay? But I want to tell you that you can have it. And I can't give it to you. Jesus Christ can. Right now, wherever you are, whatever struggle you've had, whatever ecclesiastical disaster you've lived through, you can turn and say, I want that peace, Lord. I want to know that death in Jesus so I can rise with him. That's what we do as Christians. That's the story we tell. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Father God, your spirit moves in ways that are beyond our control. And uh, I just pray today, Lord, that if, if, you have, if you have indwelt someone today, if you've been knocking on a heart or, or, or just beckoning someone to return to you, to acknowledge the truth of their story, that we're all part of your story. Lord, I pray that you would bring that to fruition today. That somehow that dumb lips, these lips that are always so broken and crooked, can be straightened out again. That we can proclaim a name that's too holy to say because we know him who's been raised. We pray today, Lord, that if there's any here who don't yet know this great, great message of salvation, you would do the work, Lord. You love folks more than we can and we try. You know all the truth. We don't hardly know any of it. But we trust you, Lord, with that work. And we thank you. And Lord, what a joyous thing. Can we, can we just jump from can our souls, articulate these dead bodies to say, praise you, Lord. Praise you, God, for all you've done. Make us beacons of light to the world, Lord. Let your word burn in our bones like a fire that we can't extinguish. And may you always get the glory forever and ever for all eternity, Lord, and all things to come that you would be glorified. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.